<laughs> so I get anywhere near a volcano and it shuts up. That's um, quite an unfortunate superpower to have. It is. You're listening to The Cosmic Cast. Good morning, afternoon or evening and welcome to The Cosmic Cast. Today you are with the unquenchable Marissa Lowe, the unbeatable Tom Harvey. You're right. And the frankly unbearable John Purney Fisher. <laughs> Charming. <laughs> and today's guest, we have the unstoppable Dr. Kat Heyer. Hello. Hello, Kat. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Um, so, what do you do here at the University of Manchester? Um, so, I'm a postdoc, which means that I've done my PhD and um, decided not to get a real job. Um, so, I've stayed <laughs> in academia. Um, but I, no lo- I don't yet have, you know, the academic version of a real job, as in a lectureship or anything. Um, so, uh, yes, but I'm a volcanologist um, and I use uh, satellites to look at volcanic uh, emissions into the atmosphere and try and work out whether or not any volcanoes have gone boom and make sure planes don't fly into ash clouds. Because you've been here how long now? It's been a little while now, hasn't it? Uh, uh, eight months. Eight, eight months. months yeah. Yeah. So where you and you were in America beforehand, weren't you? Yes, uh, northern Michigan. So uh, yeah, middle of nowhere. Um, almost, almost Canada, but not quite. Mm-hmm. How long were you there for? A uh, couple of years. Cool. Couple okay. Years. So yeah. So I guess that's quite like a common thing, isn't it? People tend to do their PhDs, go off to another country for a few years. Yeah, and what's one of the really good things about academia is you can go, you can go and live somewhere else for a little while, and then come back again, and um, mm. and somebody generally pays you to do it. Mm-hmm. So was that a, a conscious decision to go to America, or was it just whatever was going? A uh, combination of both. Always wanted to live abroad, but and and you know one of the best people who in my field mm-hmm. was was working there, and um, and the job came up. I applied with very little ambition that I would get it, um, and then all of a sudden found myself in in yeah remote us with you know in minus 20 degrees celsius <laughs> weather um without a car in yeah. the middle of january <laughs> yeah well, that sounds pretty good so this must be luxury by comparison <laughs> well yeah there's a whole lot more rain though uh, yeah. um, did you have much of an interview process then was it just a a skype chat and uh, you're in type situation that seems to be not even that i i literally got an email seven months after i put the application in mm-hmm. going when can you Wait, start? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah, so that's the interesting thing about America. It does seem to be a lot less formal than it is over here. Like, so when, when I started in Tennessee, it was literally a Skype chat, just chatting about random things. I was like, yeah, all right then, you can come along whenever you want then, basically. Uh, oh, okay. There's well, no informal was... interview panel or anything like that. Uh, what was your experience like for Manchester then? Well, that was a proper sit-down panel of people, proper, you know, set-out questions and all fair and balanced and all that. Whereas in America, it's just like, yeah, just whatever, come <laughs> along. So I'm not sure how I feel about it, really, because on the one hand, it's great that you can just like build relationships and get jobs quite easily. On the other hand, it's quite easy to sort of take advantage and is not the, the checks and balances to ensure like a fair process and things of there, I guess. So, I yeah, because I feel like here they're very careful about advertising to mm-hmm. a wide range of people mm-hmm. and then making sure yeah. they're getting, you know, a wide range of applicants and then yeah. doing the same thing with everyone. But I guess that's it's quite reassuring, actually, to be honest, if you're looking at applications to know it's a bit more fair. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, there are definitely checks in place that if you, even if a job is written with somebody in mind, that if a better candidate applies, well, they're gonna they're gonna get it, even yeah. though it was written for somebody else. Mm. 
So um, were you working on a similar project there that you are here? Or? Yes, uh, very similar, although using it was a NASA-funded project, so it was directly using NASA, um, or primarily using NASA satellite data, um, whereas here I'm working on the, one of the new Sentinel missions, uh, so one of the ESA missions, um, which is you know, kind of revolutionizing our, our understanding of, of atmospheric composition. But the flip side of it is that with more data comes more data. And it's, it's, uh, it's both a good and a bad thing. You know, you, the, the ability to access the information contained within that data is then more challenging, mm -hmm. even though um, we have a lot more at our disposal, we have to then deal with it as well. So these are satellites in orbit tracking volcanic plumes? Is that... So they're actually just measuring um, atmospheric composition, um, so like what, the gunk that's in the atmosphere, mm -hmm. which which molecules are there and how much of each one is there. Um, like trace gases and all yes, that kind primarily of stuff. trace yeah. gases. So this the original version of this was to monitor ozone, mm -hmm. um, that was launched in the mid nineteen seventies, and oh, it's right. a heritage okay. instrument that has evolved over time. So would that be the instrument that detected the the ozone hole in Antarctica and all that? Um, so the ozone hole was first detected using a um, using radio sondes. So basically, balloons that we launch um, from particular uh, particular locations, usually once a day, um, and uh, it's initially the satellites didn't agree with those radio sound measurements. Um, they they the the radio sounds were measuring very low values, and the satellites just weren't returning those values. Um, and they eventually realised that the algorithm, so the the code that was being used to analyse the satellite data um, had had a had a, a line in it that was essentially made to, there to make sure that any erroneous data, so any data that didn't make sense, was thrown away. Oh. Unfortunately, it turned out that they had been throwing away pretty much all of the data from um, like like over Arctic near uh, Antarctic mm -hmm. winter. Um, and that was why they hadn't seen the ozone hole. When they went back and took out this line of code and looked at all of the data, they found a perfectly matching data, nice. set of data. Good. So <laughs> this is where we have to be a tad careful with what we what we throw away as well, well as what quite. we keep. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, uh. So to get into the nitty gritty, how do satellites see these gases? You know, I think we're all used to seeing nice satellite images using visible light of what the world looks like, but how, how do we see these gases? Um, so it's very similar, um, but it's just that we look in a different part of the, uh, the electromagnetic spectrum. So we, uh, I'm primarily using, uh, so the instrument I'm using is um, an ultraviolet instrument. So we know that there are particular parts of the, of, of the spectrum which are absorbed by, um, by different molecules. And so if we look at the amount of light or the, the amount of energy that we get back from in each of these wavelengths, then we can say, okay, well, if, if I've lost you know, uh, wavelengths at this, this, and this, then I can say, okay, well, that is sulfur dioxide or that is nitrogen you know, dioxide or whatever. Um, and the downside is that you know that's great in theory when you have like a, a solid line and then the individual in the individual retrievals but um but of course we have multiple in uh, multiple molecules all absorbing in different combinations of the same of the same set of lines um and so each molecule has a different signature a different fingerprint basically but all of those fingerprints are overlaid mm -hmm. and so pulling out the individual one that you want and that you're interested in is is the challenge mm. 
And are there problems with different amounts of cloud cover, different weather? Does that affect these measurements? Yes. So cloud is just just horrible. If we could just get rid of cloud, that would be awesome. Um, so uh, so it's it's fine if we have um, if we have cloud underneath us our, our SO two plume, so sulfur dioxide plume. Then um, then actually we can we can sometimes because we're expecting you know kind of dark blue or green on the ground if we suddenly have white then we're reflecting a lot more light than so we can sort of we we can overestimate how much is coming because we're mm. basically scattering back more light than we would expect um if it's over the top then we just don't see anything um, so uh so yes um it's it's one of those where as long as it's over or above uh, like above or below then it's fine um it's when it's mixed in that it becomes a real problem because then right, we have okay. no idea how much how much we're losing how much we're gaining and that mm. kind of thing um, but do, are these satellites constantly orbiting Earth? So are they constantly collecting data from this? Yes. So um, as I say, I use an ultraviolet instrument, which means that it only collects data on the daylight side of the um, of the orbit. But yes, it orbits around the Earth, tracking tracking the sun. So it's what we call a sun synchronous um, satellite. And so it moves around, and it's in a constellation with several other satellites over past the equator at about one thirty p.m. local time and so we get the same set of measurements every day um, for every location um, we get global coverage every day um, we have other instruments which observe in the infrared um, those ones use the earth as, a, as an energy source rather than the sun and so those ones we can use to look at um, at both daytime and nighttime measurements um, so we have generally twice as much data from those ones as we do from from the ultraviolet instruments so you've got more of a, a physics-y background i guess did you do your phd in in, in, in this sort of field as well or? yes so I, my undergraduate was physics and astrophysics mm. um, and then did a master's in geophysics and meteorology but my phd was originally very volcanology based okay right um it was intended so i was studying a volcano in the caribbean uh, like a british territory mm -hmm. um uh, called uh, montserrat and the volcano was sufra hills and it had been reliably erupting for sort of 15 years mm -hmm. and then i started looking at it at which point it did the thing that i have now you know gained a bit of a reputation for and it stopped erupting um <laughs> wow so, i'm sure the locals were thankful <laughs> well yes yes but i have to say as a volcanologist uh, you know having been studying volcanoes for 11 years i have never seen a volcano do anything <laughs> <laughs> um, so i get anywhere near a volcano and it shuts up that's um, quite an unfortunate superpower to have it is it is <laughs> no, that could um, be quite a fortunate superpower <laughs> to have depending on you know fortunate for the people living there i guess slightly unfortunate when you decide oh Oh, I'm going to do a PhD on this eruption this and then the eruption yeah. stops. Pretty much, pretty much. So um, so originally we had planned on moving to Mount Etna in Italy um, after my volcano, after 18 months, we gave up and we're just like, okay, this is not going to happen. Um, so we thought we would move to Mount Etna, which uh, at that point was erupting every five to six days. So we thought, okay, that's fine. We can go out for two or three weeks. We'll get sort of two or three full cycles. It'll be awesome. So we, you know, we decided this. We checked it with with my my like advisory committee and things. And um, yeah, so pretty much then it started stopped erupting every five days and started erupting every fifty days. <laughs> um, 
at which point my supervisor decided he was going to start renting me out to um, to volcano observatories that wanted some some peace and quiet for a bit. <laughs> um, but yes, so um, so instead I ended up using a lot of satellite data from mm-hmm. previous parts of the eruption on Sufra Hills okay. um, instead of doing the PhD that we had intended on doing. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. so what was the original aims for looking at Sufra Hills and Etna? Um, so we were hoping to look at, or we, it was still going to be gas-based, but we wanted to relate it to um, ground deformation. So, so the movement of the ground under the volcano on really short timescales, so kind of seconds to minutes, mm. um, and relating that to the SO2 emissions um, and seeing whether or not we can see changes in the way that the volcano, um, or the, the, the shape of the volcano just before a big slug of SO2 comes out the top. Um, so that was the original aim, but you do rather need an erupting volcano in order to be able to do that. So mm. yes, yes, it's uh, didn't work in the end. <laughs> mm. So what does outgassing of SO2 usually mean for a volcano? So as magma moves up from depth, then um, the pressure and the temperature decrease. Um, and so what happens at, at, you know, when they're when they're in the magma chamber, you know, ten. 15 kilometers down, um, then the, it's so hot and so dense, or so, and the pressures are so high that you end up with the gases being dissolved into the into the magma, into the molten rock. As that comes up, um, as the magma moves upwards towards the surface, then the particularly the pressure decreases, and that means that it can no longer keep as much gas dissolved inside, um, and so the different different gases, different um, molecules. Uh, move or transition out of the magma and into a gas phase at different depths. So the first one to come out is water, then carbon dioxide, and then sulfur dioxide. There are lots of other little ones, but they they are the primary ones. Um, And so if we start seeing a volcano emitting SO2, then it's usually a signal that there is magma, fresh magma, that's moving up. And so we can use it as a way to monitor volcanoes around the world. And that's one of the things that I do is to look at look at these small emissions, um, but changes in emission. And the reason that we look at sulfur dioxide, even though it's the third, the third most abundant one to come out of a volcano, is because there's already lots of water and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But the the general amount the amount that's there in the background is for sulfur dioxide is essentially zero and so it's easier to see the difference so once you've got your satellite data it's cloud free and you go ooh there's some so2 coming out of that volcano what do you do with that data um so one of the big things that we want to know is how how, how the so2 is coming out so does it match up with the amount of of um, lava emission that we're seeing from from the from the volcano itself, or um, how is it changing over time? So, if we're just interested, if it's just a small amount and we don't think that there's any activity on the surface, then we tend to measure that just per day, um, and so we can just see, okay, well, we've we've got a gradually increasing amount or decreasing decreasing amount. Um, However, if we have a big eruption, then what we want to do is we want to see how the how the SO2 coming out varied over time on much shorter timescales than the one snapshot a day that we get from the satellites. And the way that we do that is by modeling using uh, using weather data, essentially. So wind wind fields, um, so 3D wind fields that we use to trace the trajectory of where the 
where the, the plume came from over time. And so what that means is that we can, down to even 10 minute time resolution, we can get, um, we can work out how much SO2 was coming out every 10 minutes rather than once every 24 hours. That's right, incredible. Okay. So you're, you're basically, you're taking stuff that's fairly effuse and then back modeling it to where it came from exactly that's amazing yeah so, so we can do that and then we so we got get not only the the time that it was emitted but or the yeah so we can trace it back we know exactly where it went that means we know how long it took to get there mm -hmm. and so we can use that to work out what time it was emitted mm -hmm. um but we can also use it to work out what the altitude or what the height was of the plume when it was emitted and also what time or what height it was when it was measured and one of the big problems that we have with satellite data is that if you guess so if you if you're we up until now have always had to guess what height uh, the the the, uh, the the volcanic plume is at now that's bad for um, for aircraft because they don't want to, I mean, particularly don't want to fly through ash clouds, but even flying through SO2 clouds mm -hmm. is, it's incredibly corrosive. And so it's long-term, it causes long-term damage to aircraft engines. Um, but if we can, we can use our, our method. And so we can actually work out exactly which altitude mm -hmm. ends up returning to the volcano. And so we can retrieve the correct amount, the correct height, because the way that the satellite makes the measurement, it essentially just measures the whole, the whole atmosphere. Um, and you have to, you have to work out where the SO2 is. And if you put it in the wrong place, if you put it too low, then you tend to overestimate how much SO2 is there. And if you put it too high, then you underestimate it. And so if we don't get the right height, we don't get the right SO2 amount. And then all of our assumptions about, about what that means can be completely wrong. Sounds like a lot of maths. <laughs> <laughs> there can be a lot of maths. Um, fortunately, we have a lot of computer code and the computers <laughs> do the maths for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So uh, presumably it gets to a point then when the, when the, the plume or the, S, uh, the SO2 is, is so diffuse that you can't sort of measure it anymore. When it gets to a certain yes. distance, I guess. Yes. One of the things is, wh where is the edge of a cloud? Mm -hmm. um, which is always very difficult to mm -hmm. define. Um, and so we we just get to the point where our yeah our, essentially our satellite just can't can't mm -hmm. resolve it anymore um and then then at that point we kind of give up um so you've got like a radius then where you can sort of expect to reasonably see where plumes are going around an eruptive center um so it just depends on where in the atmosphere and right. how much so2 okay. comes out yeah. um so some eruptions will if they end up in the upper atmosphere where there's essentially no weather mm -hmm. um so there's no rain mm -hmm. uh, or very little yeah. um then you can have the the um the plume can last for weeks oh really if that not long months wow okay. yes That's if it gets amazing. up into the high atmosphere but um, so Pinatubo in 1991, mm. it was erupted to about 30 kilometers. And we reckon that that one, we know that that one lasted for the, the, the actual SO2 plume lasted for weeks. Mm -hmm. um, the impact of it when it was converted. So it converts from SO2 into sulfuric acid droplets or sulfate right. um, aerosol. And that results in very bright clouds mm -hmm. up at high, high altitude. Um, and they reflect sunlight and actually lead to a global cooling impact. Um, and so we know that the, gl the global climate after Pinatubo was cooled by about 0.3 degrees for, uh, for two years mm -hmm. after the eruption. So, wow. which doesn't sound like very much, but it's, it's a lot for one volcano. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So, yeah. so what are the main volcanoes you've been studying recently? 
Um, so I've been looking at a selection of ones recently. Um, we've had a number of reasonably large eruptions, which is quite unusual. Um, we've also had some quite high impact small eruptions, which um, so we had uh, just just over Christmas. So um, we had um, Anak Krakatoa erupted in on the 22nd of December last year, um, and um, and Mount Etna erupted on the 24th of December. Um, and then they do seem to come in, in slugs. It's really annoying. Um, <laughs> and I bet it disturbed your Christmas a bit. <laughs> well, a little bit. <laughs> um, but then we had two two big eruptions. Um, so Rokoke um, in the Kuril Islands in Russia and um, Ulawan in uh, Papua New Guinea, um, who b- both of which erupted um, in June of this year. And then Manam volcano also erupted um, also, in, well, also in Papua New Guinea, erupted um, several days after um, Ulawan. So, yeah, we we went from having nothing for six months, and from the, a big eruption, we hadn't had one since Kalbuko in 2015, to having certainly Rokoke and Ulawan were large eruptions within four days of each other. Mm. <laughs> um, so, what would you class as a big eruption? Um... So. For me, a big eruption is one that I can easily see with a satellite and that lasts for several days. So the plume um, lasting for several days at least. Um, so usually that means that it will get, um, it will go above the tropopause. Um, so that that varies in height. It can be, it sort of mostly depends on the the temperature and the season of the area you're in. So in the uh, the pole in polar winter, then it can be down at kind of eight kilometers whereas in the tropics in the summer well I mean not that there's a huge amount of seasonal variation but um it's you know around the tropics you can get to 17 kilometers and still be still be in the in the tropical in the troposphere so if it makes it into the stratosphere that means the winds are much uh, are, are move it much further and also it has much longer residence times in the atmosphere because um because there's there's basically no weather in the in the stratosphere so so are you, is it uh, when you're using the satellite then, I guess, there's a whole bunch of other people that also want to make use of it. Do you allocate time or like how do you gain access to some of these data sets? Um, so the, the, uh, a lot of the data sets are, in fact, pretty much all of them are freely available. Okay. Um, some of them you have to register for, but, you know, it's literally a case of entering your email and you can have a look. Um, just because you can have a look doesn't necessarily mean it will mean anything to you, mm, yeah. but um, but you can access the data. Um, NASA have been kind of the leaders in this, um, in making their data not only freely available, but also essentially freely interpretable. So mm-hmm. they have they have data sets that, or uh, data visualization tools online where you can just go and have a look and you can just just type in the email address and go and see what yeah. what the SO2 was up to from five different instruments. That's cool. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a really nice tool. Uh, we don't have anything like that for uh, for the ESA instruments, um, but I think that there is a general move mm-hmm. towards that. Yeah, I mean, you know, that kind of sort of open access. It's all public data ultimately, isn't it? So it's really important, I think, yeah. for it to be freely available. Yeah, exactly. It's paid for by by taxpayers yeah. throughout the EU, so yeah. therefore, you know, anybody should be able to yeah. access it. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's it also means that countries which have, uh, or a lot of the time, countries which have a lot of volcanoes are not always the most affluent and so mm. therefore if you can if we can provide this data in a way that's interpretable mm-hmm. to civil defense and uh, volcano observatories then that's that's the aim yeah so so is the satellite looking 
is it looking at specific locations or are you looking at a whole range of different like longitudes and latitudes at the same time so it essentially looks at everywhere every day right um so it's um, so you're not gonna miss anything potentially no not primarily um right. occasionally we get data gaps mm. and at the equator then you can sometimes end up with the the width of your volcano so kind of not you know, the width of your satellite not quite covering the whole mm. um the whole globe but that's quite rare and even even if it does happen then you you will cover it the next mm. day yeah, yeah, um, yeah cool um what's the resolution of sentinel uh so this uh this is sentinel 5p um and the instrument uh so my instrument has a resolution now of five and a half by three and a half kilometers which sounds quite big if you're used to um or like fr from our point of view that seems quite big but the next best one um so the instrument it's replacing which is omi is um 13 by 24 kilometers and the one one of the best ones that we have apart from that that can do this level of of retrieval would be 12 kilometers uh 12 kilometer diameter circles how right, large okay. are the plumes that they're observing kind of on average um oh i mean they vary anything from mm. you know a couple of pixels on tropomi which is you know which we would never have seen before which mm -hmm. is amazing that we can now see it um anything up to all the way around the world mm. right um so how much does the resolution matter for the work that you're doing so it's really important if we can't if you're if you're looking at a big pixel and you have a small plume um, mm. then you end up with not only can you not see the variability within that plume mm -hmm. which is important you may just never see it um, mm. because you're basically you're, you're spreading it over over a box that's four times the size of the plume then that drops your, mm -hmm. your the relative amount in that plume down um, whereas now we can see each pixel gives us a much better mm. resolution um, and allows us to understand the variability in the plume which we know we always knew was there but we could just never resolve it mm. so it's like taking a picture with um nokia 3210 no 3210 didn't even have a camera um, <laughs> um but uh but yeah with like an old like a, a you know an, an original iphone's camera and you know and and an slr you know a digital slr it's it's mm. it's just they're not even comparable anymore mm. to compare mm. you know so so what the details that we can pick out allow us to understand how how the volcanoes vary much better mm -hmm. So is that sort of an optimum resolution? What was the future? Are, are there still plans to, to do higher, even higher resolution? Or? Oh yeah, we're never done. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, we uh, we yes. I mean, I think that the next the next set will be will be you know again mm. like improving the resolution. Orders of magnitude. Yes, yeah. yeah. So um, the other thing is that we have these are all polar orbiting instruments, mm -hmm. so they see the whole globe, but they only see. Um, at one time of day, mm -hmm. so if there are very if there's variability from morning to night, yeah. we wouldn't see it. Yeah. Um, also, you only see each each bit of the globe once a day. Yeah. Um, so we do have other instruments that are geostationary, so that yeah. means they look over one particular point of the um, of the Earth. They are always centered on the equator because otherwise they wouldn't stay put. Um, uh, but uh, but they're uh, located at different points. So we have one focused on um, like zero zero, mm -hmm. so um, zero latitude, uh, zero longitude as well as zero latitude. Um, then the Japanese um, 
space agency recently launched Himawari, which is another instrument, and that one's located kind of over the Pacific. Um, so that one's been really quite useful for, mm. for some of the stuff that we're looking at. But we do definitely have some big some big data gaps in mm. those ones. We need about five more of them, and then that'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we have the the next generation of meteor of, of uh, the, the geostationary ESA satellite is going up reasonably soon. I think it's later this year it mm-hmm. launches. Um, so that will be, uh, yeah, Meteosat third generation. Mm-hmm. So um, that will be, again, will give us this. this um, so they give us re- t- time resolution of 15 minutes. So instead of once a day, we get data every 15 minutes. Oh, wow. which well, that's a big, that's a big jump of resolution. It then. is a big change. Yeah. So, so the, they, they definitely have their plus sides, but the downside is that they are orbiting at 36,000 kilometers from the earth. Whereas the, the polar, the, the polar orbiting low, low earth orbit, as we call them, they are orbiting at about 800 kilometers. So, you know, you just, you, your pixels end up a lot bigger. Yeah. 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 I imagine it's an area that's quite well funded then as it's quite important to know this kind of stuff. It is. Um, atmospheric composition is important. Um, it's important for things like climate change, um, uh, atmospheric, you know, air quality, mm. um, you know, as well as, as the trace gas stuff that yeah. we do. Um, we use it for ozone measurements to mm-hmm. see whether or not, you know, how the, how the ozone holes are varying each year. Um, but yeah, it's, it's important for, for multiple things. Originally, it was driven by weather. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah. You know, one of the main things that we need it for is... is do I need um, an umbrella today? Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. So the better our data is, the better our models can be. Um, because, you know, if you put rubbish in, then you get rubbish out. So, um, <laughs> so if your data going in isn't as good as you can make it, then, then the results of your model will be poor. Um, yeah. But if we can improve... Are, you know the data going in then we by by default improve improve the forecasts coming out yeah. yeah there's nothing worse when you look at the forecast in the morning it says sunny and then it actually does rain that's, it's really annoying <laughs> thank you for seeing the bigger picture there <laughs> also it's manchester like seriously we have why do you ever leave without an umbrella <laughs> well, i hate carrying umbrellas around it's just really annoying because you have that massive like slightly pretentious like big cane one it's not a big cane one it's just a big black umbrella i know but like you could just get one that folds in your bag but Mm. But also they're small you know i want a a broad (laughs) canvas to encompass me what happens to these satellites when they are replaced by newer ones are they decommissioned completely or are they repurposed for other things or um so they usually well they aren't they're very rarely decommissioned they just Mm. stop working um and when they stop working then um then yeah essentially they they just sit there and it's becoming a real problem mm. is that mm. we have a whole bunch of defunct um uh, um satellites that yeah. are just orbiting mm. um and they obviously they're taking up space that we now can't use for other satellites um so we had uh, there was a, a collision between an iridium telecommunication satellite and a defunct i think it was a meteorology satellite mm. um so there is a there is a requirement if you are if you are an active satellite so you still have fuel on board then you have to get out of the way of a, of another satellite that doesn't have any fuel on board because mm-hmm. it can't um they didn't they smashed into each other and instead of having two things for norad to to track instead we have about two and a half thousand bits that are now wow. hurtling around and of course on totally 
totally um, chaotic trajectories because they're not they're not just a single satellite orbiting. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, that would be very bad. Mm-hmm. Like we we rely on satellites for so much, everything from GPS and um, and and telecommunications through to you know making sure that well you know weather forecasting and mm-hmm. and. I'm quite certain that there are a whole lot of of military stuff up there that we don't know about. <laughs> so um so you know it's 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 something that we are having to think about. Um a lot of the satellite agencies or the the uh, space agencies are now coming up with methods to remove their satellites from orbit at the end mm. of life. So that's things like they've put well various different things have been considered. So some are literally just a retro burn. So you 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 design them in a way that they have a final rocket that burns and and will push it into the atmosphere. Um, so it burns up and then anything that's left over will crash into the ocean. Uh, so that was what they did when they decommissioned Mir, the space station. Um, the mm. largest thing, the largest chunk that came down was I think about the size of like a big boulder, but you know it wasn't it wasn't anything and they, it crashed down in in the Pacific. Um, but then yeah, there are. There are a lot of satellites that are already up there that we didn't really think about this problem yeah. to start with. Yeah. So, um, so there have been suggestions of basically like a big net that you <laughs> chuck up there. And I know yeah. it sounds ridiculous, but the harpoon as well, isn't there? Yeah. So the there's debris harpoon. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Yes. Or totally, totally awful, depending on which way it goes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yes. So, so I think that there is, uh, you know, there is. It is a consideration, and it's something that we really need to start proactively looking into so that we don't end up with just like this sea of trash around us um in the because it could get to the point where we actually couldn't get out of get out of you know out of earth orbit because there'd just be so much junk Mm. up there that you wouldn't be able to get through it safely yeah Mm. um so kat if you weren't looking at volcanoes from space and you could be doing something else in academia or outside of academia what would you want to do Oh, easy question. Astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. No, That's a fair Has answer. anyone actually said that yet? No, no. no, no, ah. no. And I'm not even kidding. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. That's, yeah, that would be, that's dream job mm-hmm. is is astronaut. Yeah, I'd quite like to go and be, you know, first mission to Mars. Sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Kat, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. That was a good conversation. And then, uh, yeah, we'll have to have you on again next year once uh, you're a bit more into the project and got some more results coming through. Sounds good. Excellent. Well, thanks very much again. And to all listeners out there, we'll uh, catch you next week. Thank you.